Welcome to another AIC NSW Conveyancing Podcast. The podcast series brings you the latest in case law, legislative updates and conveyancing practice from a select group of experts in the field. In this episode, Margaret Collier talks to Julie Walsh, a solicitor with decades of personal experience in strata development, ownership and maintenance. Julie is a director of the Owners' Corporation Network, or OCN, a non-profit organization dedicated to advancing the interests of residential strata apartment owners. Our speaker today is Julie Walsh. Julie is a solicitor specialising in planning law who has been in practice for over 35 years. She started as a general practitioner where she did plenty of conveyancing and bought her first strata apartment in 1984. Since then, she has owned a number of residential strata apartments and been on a number of strata committees. Although she currently lives in a house, she remains invested in the residential strata community and currently sits on two strata committees, one as a chair. For the past 18 months, she has been a director of the Owners' Corporation Network, or OCN, a non-profit organisation dedicated to advancing the interests of residential strata apartment owners. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Margaret, for having me on. Um, I just wanted to start by saying that even though I've done a number of live presentations, today is my first podcast, so uh, (laughs) I hope that it goes okay and the technical gods uh, shine on us. I'm sure they will. I'll just note that you're talking today principally as a director of OCN rather than as a lawyer, though I guess it's hard to disregard that completely. Um, So anything covered here isn't intended as legal advice or even best practice recommendations, but intended more to raise awareness of areas of concern. Yeah? That's great. Um, Well, for me, the great big elephant in Strata is, of course, um, building defects. Now, there's been a lot of media attention in the last 18 months since Opal Tower and Mascot Tower about building defects in your apartment buildings in New South Wales. What's your advice to anyone contemplating buying an apartment off the plan? So um, I'd start by saying there were some legislative changes last year um, to improve consumer protection for people buying off the plan. But the one area that still hasn't been covered is the area of building defects. And I've got to say, since being an Owners Corporation Network Director over the last 18 months, I know way more about building defects than I ever wanted to know. So my simple message is exercise extreme caution. Um, And that's not just my view. There have been quite a number of reports into this topic, both in the state of New South Wales and Australia-wide. And um, one of the most well-known reports is a report done by Bronwyn Weir and Peter Shergold in 2018, and it was commissioned by the Commonwealth Government, and it found widespread defects in the new residential apartment market, not just in Sydney, but in every state. And Bronwyn Weir was interviewed on Four Corners last year, and the program was called, appropriately, Cracking Up. And she was asked if she would buy a new apartment, and she said, and I quote, If I was going to be investing in an apartment, I would buy an older one. It's common sense, isn't it? So no. There was another report by the University of New South Wales City Futures in 2012 in which, and it wasn't a report specifically about defects, it was about strata living, strata committees, strata managers, etc. 
And there was a survey of apartment owners and 85% of the apartment owners in new apartments who responded said that they had building defects. And then there was another report by Nicole Johnston from Deakin University in Victoria last year that put the figure even higher. And she used the phrase, a plague of defects, um, which is very topical at the moment. And then finally, there's a report that was just handed down by the New South Wales Upper House into building quality in residential buildings on April the 30th. It's a very lengthy report, but it does make very disturbing reading for anyone who's actually contemplating buying off the plan or a new apartment. So I'd have to say in Sydney, and one of the joys of actually getting old is that you do actually get a bit of history and a bit of observation about what's happening. I'd have to say over the last 20 years, we've mainly had a rising market in Sydney and we have this phenomenon of FOMO or fear of missing out. Mm. So there's really been a ready supply of customers prepared to buy off the plan on the basis that if they put a deposit down this year and if the market keeps rising, when they're asked to settle in two or three years' time, the value of the apartment's gone up. So they've actually, they think that they've got a bargain, but of course it's not a bargain if it turns out that there's defects that they end up paying for themselves with special levies. Something else that I wanted to mention is, and this is why it's so hard to get good data on the prevalence of defects, is that if you buy an apartment off the plan or in a new building and it turns out that the building is actually in fact plagued with defects, nobody wants to advertise that for fear of bringing down the value of their apartment. And I simply ask the question, do you think anyone's going to be buying an apartment in Opal Tower or Mascot Tower anytime soon? <laughs> and we actually had the, the chair of um, Opal Tower, Shady Iskander, he came and spoke at the OCN annual general meeting and he said that they were looking at one stage in the future of actually changing the name of that apartment block because anyone yeah. Googling it, if they haven't been following it, um, the next thing I want to talk about, which is something, and even though I'm a lawyer and I've owned in Strata and I thought I'd been paying attention, there was something that completely missed me by. In 2003, following the collapse of the insurance market for building defects in apartments, the state government removed, there was something called compulsory homeowner warranty insurance that a builder had to take out before they built a residential property. And that compulsory insurance was removed for apartment blocks over three storeys. So you actually get better consumer protection if you buy an apartment up to three storeys compared to one more than three storeys, which seems completely perverse when you think about how much more complex a high-rise apartment building is. And because I wasn't there at the time, when I explain that to people, they, they go, well, I just don't understand why that is. And I've been told it's because the argument was that the that the high-rise apartment buildings were being built by the big the big consortiums like the Tier 1 builders, and so they could be trusted to do the right thing. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that's what, I, that's what I've been well, told. I'm not, I wasn't there. But I think, I, I mean, the real answer was they couldn't get insurance. They said to the government, the whole construction industry is going to grind to a halt if you don't do something. So the, the something was to actually remove a large chunk of, consumer protection, mm. which unfortunately seems to be a bit of a theme in this right. space. And the Actually, last thing that I want to 
Yep. I'll just chip in there if it's of any interest to you. What I was told at the time when I was attending all the seminars, etc., when the legislation changed, the theory was that with a high rise, there are lots of lots and there are a greater number of lot owners that their special levies per lot were going to be manageable. Whereas in a smaller building where you've got fewer lot owners, the dollar factor per resident for the same issue was going to be far less affordable. So it was kind of like, okay, great big high rise, you know, you've got 50, 60 lots, your special levy for a particular defect may be a thousand bucks or so. Whereas if you've got a three level building, um, you know, the same defect might cost you 10 or $15,000 in a special levy. I don't know yeah. if it's right well, or not. Chelyonis of Opal Tower and uh, Mascot Tower, is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I don't think yeah. anybody thought that that stage, I mean, that was back, oh, in the 90s, wasn't it, that that happened? No, it was 2003. It was 2003. Right. Okay. So sorry to interrupt, but I mean, when I sort of heard it, I was thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's the, the three level. Yeah. Um, and it's something that conveyances and off the plan um, know to ask for they're supposed to get yeah. that insurance policy if it's a small building either at the time of exchanging the contract or if the work hasn't started to get that insurance certificate once the work has started you know and there's usually a special condition in the great big ones to say that they don't have to provide it anyway I'll let you pick up <laughs> so lastly um, is the prevalence of what are called $2 companies where the developer sets up a special purpose company for the purpose of carrying out that particular development. So then the units are sold, settlement occurs, the money is dispersed to financiers and to the, to the developer. So there's then no assets in the company. So if the owners of the units find that they do have substantial defects and they want to sue the developer, um, bearing in mind there's no insurance if it's above three storeys, there's no point doing that because there's no assets. So that is one of the big things that has occurred since the removal of the insurance is that's encouraged a whole lot of players to go into that space because if they build up to three storeys, they have to get the insurance, they have to pay for it, the insurer presumably vets them and makes sure that they're capable of doing it. But if it's above three storeys, they don't. So Again, when people find out about this, they, they're shocked and horrified and they say, well, how did this happen? And it's a perfectly good question. This is the notorious phoenixing. Yes, yes. So you asked me at the beginning what my advice was to people thinking about buying off the plan. The short advice is don't. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. I've just, given you, I've just given you my long advice. <laughs> Fair enough. Putting that aside, if someone has their heart set on buying that beautiful off-the-plan unit, they've been down to the display centre and they've seen the models or they've gone into the display unit and they've fallen in love, what's the advice there? And I can understand why people would want to buy these new into these new developments because if you look at older-style apartments, often they don't have parking um, they don't have all the mod cons and the layouts that you expect of a new apartment. Um, if you want to get the Sydney view, which is like a very Sydney thing, you usually have to go into a high rise. And it's estimated that 70% of new dwellings in Sydney uh, going forward will be apartments. So it's probably impractical for me to say, don't ever buy off the plan ever. 
So if you are going to do that, my simple piece of advice is go into it with your eyes wide open. And what does that mean? And what does the concept, we, we talk about due diligence as lawyers and conveyances, you know, we do our due diligence. So what is the concept of due diligence when buying an apartment off the plan? And this is really difficult because there's so little readily obtainable, accurate data for the consumer. You think about if you're buying a new car, there's all these car magazines, there's articles in the paper, you know, people are test driving them, they have awards. Most people, you know, buy a number of cars in their life. They find one they like, it's a brand, they buy it, you know, they buy it again. And even if it's the cheaper end of the car market, you can be pretty much assured that the car will work. And if it doesn't, you can get a refund. Contrast that with apartments. There are no magazines or newspaper articles rating developers and builders of residential apartment buildings. There's really, it's it's extremely difficult to get any reliable data. There are a few industry bodies that have uh, awards for best new residential developments, including high-rise apartments. But what, what we really need are awards for the best residential apartment building after, say, seven to 10 years when any defects have come to light and uh, the building has, if you like, stood the test of time. So all I can say to people about what is their due diligence when buying off the plan is to ask the salesperson if the developer, and even better, the combination of the developer and builder, if they're not the same body, have done any other projects that have been built over five years ago that you can go and check out. Or you could ask people you know who've bought apartments in the last 10 years if they were defect-free or they only had minor defects, and if so, who the developer and builder were. But just going back to that FOMO issue, if it's a rising market and you've fallen in love with the brochure and it's a great location, the temptation is to just buy it and, and think and hope for the best. Right. So is there any hope on the horizon? So there is some hope. <laughs> um, following all of the media attention around building defects, uh, following Opal Tower and Mascot Tower last year, the New South Wales government in August created a new position of a building commissioner and they appointed uh, David Chandler. And David, he's highly credentialed. He's got over 40 years experience in the building industry, including being in charge of the construction of new parliament house in Canberra. And David has been working very hard on a comprehensive reform package to improve the quality of construction of residential apartments in New South Wales. And he's being a builder, he's got he's got six pillars. And one of his pillars is something called a ratings tool whereby the customer thinking of buying off the plan or a newly built apartment will be able to access a rating of a developer or a builder. And this ratings tool is still in the development phase, but I think it would be a really useful thing to have when it comes online. Um, so, uh, you know, you're at the, you're at the, sales, the sales display unit and you know you can you can access whether it's whether it's going to be an app or something like that as I say people in the know people who do remedial defects building or people people like myself in OCN who've seen what's good and what's bad actually know who the good ones and who the bad ones are but the average punter just doesn't so I, I'm actually quite excited about that particular pillar or tool when it comes online but it's not I don't think it's going to be it's not going to be here for the consumer I don't think for at least 12 months. Right so would that ratings tool be a cumulative assessment or is it a case of you're only as good as your last development? 
that's the interesting thing. It's it's and and that's why it's going to take time. It's a bit like you know finding a vaccine for COVID nineteen. It's very complex. You've got to make sure that it's that it's going to work, that it's robust. Those are the sorts of issues that are being considered. But I I think this is the analogy that I use. If you were going to have say some elective surgery and the GP is saying, you know, there's this surgeon and this surgeon, I'd want a surgeon who'd done lots of surgeries, not one who's do- doing their first surgery or their first <laughs> like I'd want them to have done lots of surgeries but not to be at the end of their career where their hand might slip you know what I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah well yeah absolutely then would your advice be any different if uh, if you were buying an apartment in a block that's just been built so it's physically there but no one's actually lived in it there's no records so my advice is not it's not that much different except that now you can actually see the building, so that's good. Um, and you can get your own independent building inspection, although most people don't actually do that, but it's theoretically something you can do. The big problem is that in the case of the two most common types of building defects in new apartment buildings, waterproofing and fire safety systems, often the big defects are not visible, so they're so-called latent defects. But I think it'd be fair to say if you... If you were having a look, just a visual inspection yourself of a brand new apartment building and you could see like visible defects yourself, that would be a big red flag on the basis that if the quality control wasn't there for the for the facade of the building, then probably there wasn't much quality control for the things that you can't see like waterproofing. And in fire safety, I've, as I said, I've learned a lot more about defects than I ever wanted to. There's a couple of things in fire safety systems called fire collars and fire dampers and they perform a really important role particularly in high-rise buildings but they're behind the walls and the ceilings so you can't actually see them when you're doing a building inspection and often people don't discover there's a problem with them until years later. The final thing about a new building versus a off the plan is you can do an inspection of the records of the owners corporation but that's not likely to reveal much because even if they've had their first AGM and defects are a compulsory item on that AGM, it might still be too early for anything to have come to have come to light. I still have I still say ex- exercise extreme caution in this space. Well, then what about the strata building bond? Won't that kick in and help any defects? So someone said to me the strata building bond was better than nothing. And I think that's all I would say about it. It was brought in for residential apartment buildings for contracts entered into after the 1st of January 2018. So the developer has to lodge a bond of 2% of the construction contract value with the Department of Fair Trading. And that covers defects that are discovered for a period of two years after completion. There has to be an interim building inspection and then a final inspection. But the three big problems with this scheme are most of the commentators think that 2% is too low. Most of the commentators think that two years is too quick because a lot of the defects don't show up, especially waterproofing for a number of years. And thirdly, the building inspector can't do any invasive inspection, so they can't require the opening up of walls or ceilings. So I'm not comforted by that bond at all, although it is true there's nothing right nice try mm-hmm. okay so that's new buildings what about a established building what about people wanting to buy an apartment in a building that's been around for a while so my personal preference is an apartment 
building built before 1998, uh, at least in New South Wales. That's when private certification came in. And many commentators say that's when things actually started to go downhill in terms of the quality of residential apartments in New South Wales. Obviously, an inspection of the books of the owners' corporation is critical. That should show you uh, if there have been any defects and if so, whether they've been rectified. And also, if there are other issues in the building, I mean, I've been concentrating on defects, but particularly in older buildings, there are a number of other issues I'd like to touch on. But one thing I would say about the strata inspection reports is that there's no accreditation of the people providing those searches and the quality varies quite markedly and um, that is an issue of concern. But having said that, your typical purchases strata inspection report will indicate two really critical matters. One is the balance of the capital works fund and the likelihood of a special levy. And I've looked at a lot of strata inspection reports in my time. And um, one thing I'll say is it has been my experience both as an owner in strata and looking as a prospective purchaser and actually looking at these reports when I've been acting in a conveyance is that the balance of the capital works fund is very often too low given the, the age and the state of the building. And even though there is now a legislative requirement for a proper capital works fund plan to be adopted and implemented, this requirement's often not followed or not followed properly. And I had I had an anecdote from my mother. My mother bought a into an Art Deco block in Bondi in 1984. And I went to the first AGM and I said, look, there's there's virtually nothing in the called the sinking fund then. We need to put the the sinking fund levies up. And everyone outvoted me and said we'd rather keep the money in our bank accounts and um, you know many years later there's still very little in the sinking fund and we had to replace all the windows and um, everyone got a special levy of 20,000 so um, that's the end result. I, I don't know how prevalent it is but it's prevalent enough to be of a concern. When people go oh this is a really good strata unit it's got no, it's got low levies and I say well low levies may not be such a great thing particularly if it's in the capital works fund because it probably means at one stage someone's going to have to cop a special levy or two and 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 that's that's particularly damaging in a community where people have finished their working life and they're now pensioners and they've got a special levy and they don't actually have the money to pay and there have been cases where they've had to actually sell in those circumstances but when it comes to admin fund levies it is better if they are low rather than high but you have to take into account the type of building so if it's a high-rise building with lifts gym pool mechanically ventilated car parks sophisticated fire systems building manager that's obviously going to have much higher admin fund levies than a three-story brick walk-up with none of those things. So um, this course is for courses, I suppose, and you can't expect to have one of those buildings with all those things and then expect to have really low levies. So I then just wanted to talk about a few other issues um, that will show up in the pre-purchase report or might be issues of concern. And it's quite a random sample, really. But, but one of the latest battlegrounds in Strata is pets. And um, there have been some media reports last year. There was a very high high-end, high-rise apartment building in Sydney, which had a no-pet bylaw, and a new owner, having purchased in full knowledge that there was a no-pet bylaw, she moved in with her dog, and then 
when her application to keep the dog was knocked back, she took it to NCAT, which ruled in her favour, and I understand an appeal was lodged and is still pending. But when this owner got into the lift with her dog, she copped a bit of flack from some of the owners. And um, all I can say is it is a minefield. People have various strong opinions either way, and it is an area where there can there can be a lot of dispute and disharmony, and I really don't know the answer. Just going back to the, I guess, the standard sort of format of the pre-purchase inspection report, I don't know if this is still the case because I haven't done a conveyance for over 10 years, but there used to be a heading that said state of harmony of the building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was I always was interested in that. And I, and I guess I've been lucky. I've never actually owned in a building that has had disharmony. But since being involved in OCN, I've heard some stories that would make your hair curl. <laughs> um, so you'd find evidence of disharmony might be multiple applications to NCAT, uh, intemperate correspondence in the owner's corporation records. And in one case that was reported in the media last year, there was even a defamation action taken by a committee member against an owner. So it's certainly something that you'd want to steer clear of, but just because there's no disharmony now don't mean that there won't be some next year because someone new might move in. Would something like that necessarily get into the minutes? Would it necessarily get into a strata report though? No, it wouldn't necessarily. And, and there's a thing, you might have units where there's disharmony, but no one would ever. Dream. And, and in fact, I did actually have an owner who we talked about taking NCAT proceedings. And I actually said, well, you know, if you take NCAT proceedings, then people will think that your building is disharmonious and it might affect your property values. <laughs> yes, right. So, no, it might not necessarily um, uh, get into the minutes because there might be things going on where people, yeah, haven't actually done anything about it. And Yes, um, well, no yeah. one wants to buy into World War Three, do they? No, no. So my own personal favourite pre-purchase inquiry, which features in my talk I give on planning certificates, what they tell you and what they don't, is the neighbour search. So most apartment blocks, they'll have someone who lives there who knows what's going on. It might be a committee member or it might be a retiree who maybe pays a little too much attention to what's going on. And this person may well be at the open house inspection or they might be just hanging around the gardens. Uh, and if you if you see them and ask them what it's, what's it like to live in this building, you'll often, often find out a lot of very useful information that might not actually be in the minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I certainly did a neighbour search when I purchased each of my strata apartments. I didn't find out anything that turned me off. Right. Thinking. <laughs> I suppose you so, get a bit of office gossip and things like that as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you might find out some things that aren't in the owners' corporation records that might have been suppressed for some reason. Mm. Um, so my final issue in this topic is um, the ratio of owner-occupiers to investors. And in my first draft of these notes, I had some of my best friend are investors. And, of course, I live in a house. I don't live in Strata. I'm an investor. But many commentators have noticed that, and it's my personal experience too, that an engaged, harmonious and competent executive committee is one of the secrets of a a well-run, well-maintained and well-valued building. And the heart and soul of the average committee is almost always the owner-occupiers. So even though I'm an investor and I always seem to end up being on the committee because I can't help myself, 
I'm a bit of an outlier. So, and, you know, there are a lot of investors who actually pay no attention to anything. They don't go to the AGM. They, don't, they only vote. The, the only time they get interested is if the levies are going up. So that that's my experience. I actually, if I'm buying into a block, I would prefer to buy into one that has a good chunk of owner occupiers, um, preferably preferably a majority. Um, but there can be the exception that proves the rule. That's that's for sure. Just as an aside, is there much work involved in that? Because I've found over the years that the number of people that are on a committee simply because, well, nobody else would do it, someone's got to do it, and I guess it ends up being me. But I've often wondered if it really is sort of like the big onerous task that people seem to fear it is. So that's interesting because I have been on committees since 1984 and some buildings it's like nothing ever happens and some buildings just seem to have constant issues and buildings where nothing happens then suddenly and it's like you just can't tell so some committees have involved almost no work and some committees have involved a lot of work and also the bigger buildings tend to have a building manager which really helps and I've, I've generally invested in smaller buildings but the bigger buildings tend to have more issues um, so it, it is it is one of those things that is really difficult to predict but I, it has been my experience on every committee I've been on that there's normally like one mover and shaker one person who does most of the work so that's the thing you hope that it's not you <laughs> <laughs> And what about the strata manager? I'm just thinking back before when we were talking about developers and whether they've got a good reputation or not. Can problems in the building sometimes be put down to a really good or a really poor strata manager? Yes, actually. And that is actually a really important point is that um, a good strata manager is really important and you shouldn't get caught by the trap of just going with the cheapest. As I say, you don't necessarily buy the cheapest car or go to the cheapest hairdresser or the cheapest surgeon. So if you don't, if you if you're not happy with the service of your strata manager, the best thing is is word of mouth and just seeing if other people in other strata have a good strata manager. And I think it's fair to say because there's been this explosion in the number of apartments in Sydney, in particular, the I just don't think that the strata management industry has really kept pace with that. So it is sometime, and, and it also my experience that a lot of them just seem to have too many buildings. Mm. And again, that goes back to the, if you've got a committee or owners at an AGM who are given three quotes and they just pick the cheapest, then that's not really, that's not really the best course of action. But yes, a good strata manager who knows, who knows what they're doing, who can recommend you good, you know, good tradies and good service providers, and who does things like, this might seem obvious to a solicitor or a conveyancer, things like returning phone calls, things like that are really important because it is a service industry. Right. So what actually are fire dampers and fire collars? So a fire damper is when you have, typically in high-rise buildings, you have air conditioning ducts. When the apartments are built, they're built on the basis that each apartment is a fire isolated unit. So if there's a fire, the fire stays inside the unit and doesn't spread to the next unit. But the moment you put a penetration in the concrete, that's actually an opportunity for the fire to spread to the next unit. So when you put air conditioning ducts in, the fire damper is something that pops open when the temperature gets to a certain amount and it stops the fire spreading through that duct. And a fire collar is just something in penetrations generally to stop the fire from spreading from one unit to another. So they're behind the wall, you can't see them, 
if they're done properly, then they will stop the fire from spreading. If they're not done properly, then they won't stop the fire from spreading. Everyone saw the Grenfell fire photos. Um, that was a fire spreading up the outside of the building with something that was flammable. And that showed how quickly a fire can spread. So does that mean then that if you get a lot owner that does something that interferes with their party wall, their common property walls, could they in fact be negating those fire precaution measures? Exactly. And just as I said, I'd learned a lot more about defects than I ever wanted to know. I've learned a lot more about fire safety in apartment buildings than I ever wanted to know. And the front door of your apartment, the one that comes out onto the you know, the common area, the foyer, that's actually a, a fire rated door. And that's designed so that if there's a fire in your apartment, it won't escape through the door normally for at least an hour. So if you actually put penetrations through that, so if you say, oh, I want to put a door knocker on, or I want to put another another lock in there, that can actually impact on the effectiveness of that fire door. And that will normally be picked up at your annual fire inspection. And if you've got a competent person doing that, then you'll find that you might end up having to pay money to actually completely replace the door. So there is a lot of lack of knowledge in a lot of apartments about how all the fire safety issues work, but that is definitely improving. improving. And if you have a good strata manager, they can certainly help you in that regard. Oh dear, I'm just thinking about those older buildings with the lovely old dears that want to have the chain on the door and want to have um, an eye hole to see who's on the other side. So yeah. that must be an issue. I mean, if it's a three-story walk, if it's a three-story walk up, it's you know probably no one is going to die. But if it's if it, in a high rise, it's it's obviously every every extra floor you go up, the more dangerous it is. Mm. Actually, that reminds me one thing I had sort of thought that might come up today and I kept meaning to ask you about, um, things like concrete cancer, which used to be the big bogeyman in strata sort of back in the 1900s, so to speak. Um, has that sort of more or less all been cleared away now? Has Have all those problems been rectified or do you still have buildings that have I, I, that I recurring issue? Yeah. I think it is still an issue. It's just that there's sort of like worse issues that have obliterated, like, like flammable cladding, for example. It's like it would be everyone's nightmare. And that's something that I didn't specifically mention, flammable cladding, but um, that certainly is an emerging, very scary and very expensive rectification issue. So um, in every era, there's something, there's something new. Well, the problem with the flammable cladding is that it's fine for future buildings where we've already prohibited these building materials, no problems there. But for the buildings that have been constructed, we're actually finding in conveyancing circles is that banks see a new building, a new strata building, you know, less than 10 years old. And one of the questions that they ask is, is there any flammable cladding on this building? Mm. And you have to go to the strata manager and the strata manager says, well, we haven't done any kind of report. And in fact, that kind of report is extraordinarily expensive and, um, you know, we're not doing it. Yes. Yeah, no, that it is a real, it is, which take, takes me back to my issue about the three-story brick walk-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your, your 1970s, no 1980s building, you know, pre, yeah. Yeah. pre-concrete that pouring. Is, yeah, they weren't beautiful, but um, they've got a lot less issues. Mm. 
As long as you don't have concrete cancer. As long as you don't have concrete cancer. And I guess that that used to be the thing. Um, when I used mm. to get reports, the first thing mm. I did was figure out what period the building was from, figure out what defects were likely to appear and then scour the strata report to see what money they'd spent on that particular issue. Because, I mean, I've, I've seen strata reports where buildings have actually had to dig out sort of like what is the floor of one unit and the ceiling of the unit below mm. and totally re-pour the concrete yes. between the two, which is just staggering. If the fire inspectors can go in and damage walls, open up walls, I should say, <clears throat> to check the dampers, etc., collars and dampers, then do they have to reinstate the wall in such a way that they put those protections back in place? Yes, they'd have to. Yeah, so that the annual fire statement is something that the owner's corporation has to get and lodge with the council. Yeah. So the owner's corporation would engage the fire inspector Mm -hmm. and the fire inspector would do whatever they had to do and obviously they would have to make good any anything that they do but I, I I don't think they're the stories I've heard about the invasive work they do is so, so say you might have an air conditioning grill right. and you know they take the grill off and have a look inside but there have been cases where the air conditioning grill to get to it you have to get through someone's storage cage or something and so, so there have been issues like that so but because oh, it's right. actually it's actually an inspector that's engaged by the owners' corporation. It's not a council mm. inspector or anything. So yeah, no. My thinking was that if we're talking about lot owners damaging walls and creating problems yeah. with the fire protections, mm -hmm. then it by the fact that they're opening up the wall to check the fire protection, yeah. are they in fact damaging the fire protection? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So if it's a qualified fire inspector, then they would have to make sure that they put it back, you know, made it good, right, so that it didn't actually create a problem there. So are there any emerging issues you would like to tell us about? So I'm sure there's lots of emerging issues and different different people have their own pet topics, but I'm just going to talk about two emerging issues that, that I think are important if you're thinking of buying into strata. And the, the first one is uh, in residential apartment blocks, particularly in places like the Sydney CBD and beach suburbs like Bondi, is the issue of Airbnb short-term letting Typically, it's the whole apartment. Um, it's moved beyond someone just putting an air mattress on their lounge room. So generally, there's the owner has an agent who will provide cleaning and servicing of the apartment. And in fact, most of these uses are prohibited in the zoning, but it's they've just sort of grown up and the state government decided that they had to do something to respond. So the state government's announced it will be changing the planning laws to allow these uses subject to some conditions. Uh, and it was anticipated that these changes would have occurred by now, but it's now not expected to occur until the second half of this year. But in April this year, the state government legislated to make it clear that an owner's corporation can, by special resolution, make a bylaw prohibiting these uses, except where the apartment is the person's principal place of residence. So if you want to live or own in a block that has such a bylaw because you don't want to be sharing your common property with people, that you don't know and there's been there's been a bit of research on how there's extra wear and tear on the building etc so costs actually do do go up for the owners who aren't doing it so if you want to own or live in such a block that has such a bylaw that's some, that's something you should investigate now quite a lot of the cbd apartment blocks already had such a bylaw because it was a condition of their development consent and because this new legislation has only just started it'll probably be a while for this to come through. And it's it's obviously not an issue in some 
areas. But uh, as I say, anywhere that tourists might want to come and stay, then that's where I, I personally would be wanting, I wouldn't be wanting to be in a building that had Airbnb in it. So I'd be looking for such a, such a bylaw. The other emerging issue I wanted to talk about is mixed use buildings. In the beginning, in town, town planning was based on the separation of incompatible uses, and it was generally regarded that commercial and retail uses were incompatible with residential uses. But there has been a big increase in these mixed-use buildings, particularly in town centres. And if you go down to Barangaroo, you'll see those multi-million-dollar apartments with their harbour views are above restaurants and bars, and that has caused some issues with some of the people there about with noise and the smells of cooking and the like and don't believe what the real estate agent tells you you know you might be told it's going to be a dress shop downstairs and then you find it that it actually will be a bar or a restaurant and under the planning laws these these uses can be changed but the other issue with these mixed-use buildings that I've discovered through being with OCN is that they're often set up so that there there are different stratums and each stratum has its own scheme but there's something called a building management committee which gives often the commercial lot owners more rights than the residential owners. So that's actually then becomes a cause of conflict. So I personally would steer well clear of buying a residential apartment in a mixed-use building. Yes, I've heard stories where the expenses in those mixed buildings aren't necessarily um, distributed equitably and you've got, in fact, got the residential component you know, paying for the overnight lighting for the commercial areas downstairs. So, yeah, I've I've heard unhappy stories there. Yeah. Um, any final comments? So it probably won't surprise you when I say anyone buying Interstrata needs it to do with to to do it with their eyes wide open. Um, there's definitely, in my view, an extra risk in buying off the plan or brand new. But even buying an established apartment, it's never going to be completely risk-free. Make sure you do whatever due diligence you can. Try and resist FOMO. And uh, lastly, if you're interested in any more information about strata living and strata matters generally, there are lots of resources out there on the web. Um, the three that I would recommend today, first one, of course, is the Owners Corporation Network website. And if you do own an apartment, you can join for only $55. There's another website called Flat Chat, which is run by the Australian financial review journalist, Jimmy Thompson. And Jimmy writes extremely well, and he has a weekly podcast with his partner, Sue Williams, who writes for Domain and the Sydney Morning Herald. And if you are interested in hearing a particularly harrowing defect story, have a listen to their podcast on Sue's own personal experience with defects in her off-the-plan purchase, and it will make you certainly think twice about buying off the plan and the last resource is something called look up strata and that's a website that has articles and it's it's an australian-wide thing it's not just new south wales but it has articles mainly written by strata lawyers and strata managers so it's a, a little bit more a little bit more meaty so i hope that's been something to give you food for thought about buying into strata i'm obviously think it's a good idea or i wouldn't have I wouldn't have done it. And um, I know many people who, who are very, very happy living in Strata and would never, ever live anywhere else. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much, Julie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this AIC NSW Conveyancing Podcast. Special thanks to Julie Walsh. 
Your responses, ideas and suggestions can be sent to events at aicnsw.com.au. This podcast is a production of Pulley & Co. I'm Julian Pulvermacher, and I look forward to your company next time. This podcast is a guide only. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice and should not be taken as such. Should you require any further information on any aspect of the podcast, you should refer to AIC NSW or a licensed conveyancer.